Good afternoon. I'm John Hart, the co-founder of C3 Solutions, the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, and the editor of our news magazine, C3. Welcome to another edition of Right Voices, our podcast interview series where we highlight conservative leaders and ideas in the climate debate. Today, we're honored to be joined by Representative Peter Meyer, who's serving his first term as Michigan's uh, third uh, congressional representative. Uh, Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, uh, appreciate the time. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, what I want to talk to you about is the conservative movement is at a bit of a crossroads. And, and you're uh, really at a, at a busy intersection, <laughs> to, put it, to put it mildly. Uh, you're, you've got a, a tough primary challenge. Uh, you're, you're trying to, I think, shape what the future of the party ought to look like. And one of the things that you've done is join the Conservative Climate Caucus. Uh, we were actually in, in Utah together uh, last year briefly. Uh, I, I'd love to get your perspective on why you joined that caucus and why you think it's important for conservative leaders to highlight the issue of climate. Well, you know, you mentioned those crossroads and there's a couple of different, um, different, you know, I don't know, to extend that metaphor, vehicles at that intersection. And some of that has to do with, you know, an affinity towards the question of are you a more personality based uh, party or more policy based? And then when it comes to if policy based, what exactly are those policies? Right. So a lot of things are up for reimagining. And I am very much a proponent that. And uh, David Shore, the kind of uh, center left uh, political analyst, just had a, a great research paper coming out kind of affirming this. You know, three quarters of elections are won uh, not by base turnout, but by persuading, you know, independents, that marginal voter, getting them to come over and, and join your side. And right. if we are on the Republican side of the aisle to be a, a party that continues to win those marginal elections, we have to look at where up and coming voters are and, and try to persuade them with a message that resonates with them. So the politics to me of embracing, you know, not only conservatisms and the Republican Party's long history of conservation and an environmental protection, not only embracing that, but extending that forward and reflecting uh, frankly, where the country is. I mean, I think that is a political imperative uh, and a moral imperative as well. Mm -hmm. it, I'd be curious. I'll put you on the spot a little bit. How, how would you define conservatism and what do you think conservatism ought to be? Because as you know very well in your in your district, in your race this year, uh, some people define conservatism as loyalty to to one particular individual. Others define it more as loyalty to a set of ideas and, and the Constitution. Where, where How do you articulate what you think conservatism ought to be and what conservative and what type of leader you want to be. I mean, not to be too philosophical, but I mean, I guess some could define themselves or, or that to be a conservative means you must do X, Y, or Z. And I think that you, you lose any sense of political philosophy or underpinning. Uh, I mean, at my core, I think a conservative looks at all of the things that are working well in this country and says, if we're going to change something, let's be very humble. Let's be very delicate. Let's, you know, not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? It's, it's an appreciate, an appreciation, a sense of gratitude, um, a, before we change something, you know, kind of the Chesterton's fence, right? It's before anything is modified, understand exactly how it came to be and what its upside is. Even if you, the downside is very evident, 
right? I mean, you want to be deliberate. You want to be careful or, or the, uh, the standing athwart history, holding stop, you know, or at, at the very least slow down. Um, let's, yeah. let's not, uh, let's be mindful that everything has an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, so I think that to me is intrinsically very conservative. Now, what, what policy positions you overlay onto that um, are, I think, a matter for debate. And I think a debate is welcome and, and positive. Um, but, you know, I don't think there's any world in which or any you know, idol worship is not conservative. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, my my approach and I, I worked uh, for Senator Tom Coburn for years. <laughs> uh, he was a class, member of the class of 1994. And I think I think what that class understood and it was a it was a, I called it populism with por- with portfolio as opposed to populism without portfolio, because oftentimes there's just a populist reaction without a set of policies that drive the debate forward. And, but, and populism, but, I mean, to your point on the portfolio, yeah. I mean, I think. If you have a a political philosophy that maybe is infused with populism or tries to seek a broader audience, that's one thing. But if you start from a populist standpoint, you're inherently without position, because if that position falls out of favor, it's discarded very quickly. Right. I mean, it's it's a churn. Right. And of course, the the flip side is you have to have popular support for your ideas in order Mm -hmm. to be successful. And I, I think, and back on the, on the climate energy, I think uh, I'd love to get your take on, uh, you know, again, going forward, this midterm election cycle and in the future, you have a background in, in military intelligence, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And what what is your take on how the war in Ukraine has, has shaped and changed the energy debate, climate debate, uh, particularly in the U.S., but around the world, and, and how... How is that impacting constituents uh, in your district? And, and how, how do you think that you ought to respond to that? Well, it's like that old Warren Buffett, you know, quote, you know, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. Right. When <laughs> when times are tough, you see which positions are deeply held and which ones were you know, more superficial. Um, it's very easy for somebody who lives in uh, a, a large metropolitan area where they are not where, where the Metro card pricing is relatively static, depending on the MTA's finances, you know, but not beholden as much to the whims of international commodities markets in the way that somebody who is commuting to work every day is going to see that reflected. Um, and, you know, just to put it bluntly, I mean, I think, well, I think there's an imperative to be tackling climate change and to be uh, ensuring we have the best policies and that we're making progress. Uh, if, if I, you know, I don't think you'd find a single poll, maybe a poll among college undergraduates. Um, (laughs) but, but apart from that, any real subset or voting demographic that would list climate change as their, you know, top five issues right now. Right. So in, in some ways it becomes perceived as more of a luxury topic, um, and I think that's in the in the wake of the war in Ukraine, you know, spiking commodity prices you know, globally, which uh, especially in the energy sector had been rising um, prior to this. I mean, uh, I, I think I largely attribute that to two factors. I mean, one was coming out of COVID, the transportation sector restarting, uh, you know, increasing demand while supply still stayed relatively stagnant. But then number two, the way the Biden administration had approached 
their or at least message and and frankly in policies as well how they had been um, discouraging investment and causing a lot of the the large energy you know producers to basically hedge their bets right i mean if you're told that the president wants to shut down your industry you're probably not going to plow tens of billions of dollars into you know capex right like that's just not something you're going to do uh, so you had on the one hand a, you know rising demand stagnant supply and then the lack of investment because of government messaging and government policies that could match down the line or give that kind of runway for supply and demand to be matched um, so i think the I don't know that it really changed the equation too much, but to me, it was a very early shock that reflects how important it is to be pragmatic and realistic about what you're trying to do. These are not things that are going to change overnight. These are, you know, if we have a, you know, a transition occurs gradually, it does not occur quickly. And, and I think you've seen in some of this administration's messaging around electric vehicles, kind of how ham-fisted and also detached from the reality of much of the American public, uh, you know, conversations that take place within, and I, I don't mean to deride these large metropolitan areas, I've yeah, lived yeah. there for plenty of time, you know, but you can be deluded if all the people you're talking to, you know, are, that, well, that sense of groupthink that comes in just because of how narrow those conversations become. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we we did a report uh, at C3 Solutions that Nick Loris uh, authored called "Free Economies or Clean Economies" that showed that that uh, countries that embrace principles of economic freedom, the rule of law, limited government, less taxes, are twice as clean. And mm-hmm. and there's something we highlight called the Kuznet curve. And to your point about it's a luxury <laughs> to focus on. Uh, the, all the data shows that once a, once an economy develops enough wealth, and that, again, that wealth happens through innovation policies that facilitate and encourage innovation, then it then it goes over the curve and develops cleaner energy technologies. Uh, so, so I think to to the moment we're in right now, what what do you see as some of the policies that could help us be a little more pragmatic? Uh, it, it, this is an issue set that I mean, my my view, and I am curious to your take is that the the far left is very ideological and very almost fundamentalist about climate and that they, mm-hmm. they have these doctrinaire positions of, you know, everything but nuclear, everything but fracking. Uh, and th- there isn't a very rational. And in fact, that that position facilitated Putin's invasion to a degree and that Europe, Europe played a shell game. They, they went, quote, renewable, but they didn't tell their own constituents they were all off essentially outsourcing or offshoring their carbon emissions to Russia. Well, and, and to me, I mean, that's, that gets at the crux of it, right? Like I am, to me, it's so in, deeply, incredibly frustrating. Okay. Number one, um, Biden wants to increase renewables and yet has maintained the tariff on imported solar panels. And that just seems, uh, Incompetent at best, but counterproductive, you know, realistically. Um, Number two, you know, when we are in a crunch, as as you saw in the administration, kind of go hat in hand to the Saudis and and to others around the globe and try to say, hey, we're not going to buy from Russia. Can we buy from you? Uh, 
if, if our goal is climate change, if our goal is reducing greenhouse gas emissions, then why the heck are we going to some of the countries with the largest methane emissions kind of per barrel of oil, you know, instead of investing in American producers, right? Because we are both outsourcing the profits, we're outsourcing the jobs, and we are having the same global impact when it comes to global warming, when it comes to the climate, or sorry, a, a, a worse global impact when it comes to that because of that increase in methane emissions during that oil and gas um, EMP cycle. So it is just completely detached from, from hey, here, here's where we are, here's where we need to be. I mean, you kind of see the impact of, of catchphrase or slogan politics that's right. divorced from any semblance of how the real world operates. Uh, where I think there should be a focus, and, and there's no partisan objection to this except for maybe Green New Deal absolutists who believe that absent a fundamental restructuring of the economy, we're never going to get to where we need to be on climate targets. You know, how much do you hear about efficiency uh, on energy savings on, um, you know, how electric vehicles and bi-directional charging and DC microgrids and all of the things that are not super sexy, right? They're not nuclear fission, which, you know, if we achieve that will be amazing, you know, but just how we are nuclear fusion, excuse fusion, me, yeah. Yeah. but how we are, you know, gradually decreasing, you know, our, our consumption and, and trying to use say larger electric vehicles on the road as batteries for the grid so that you can modulate better between periods of peak consumption and peak production, uh, especially on the renewable side. Now, but if no one, no serious person will that I've talked to, and, and many will quietly admit, yeah, we will always need some demand, some form when it comes to the energy uh, grid, some form of on-demand generation. Right. And I think in an ideal world, that's nuclear, uh, that's natural gas. You can kind of arbitrage between the two, depending on pricing. And then nuclear is heavily dependent on subsidies. So you need to make sure that you are you're kind of driving cost efficiencies there. Um, but where is the where is the love for natural gas? I mean, natural gas production is one of the reasons why the U.S. saw a decrease in carbon emissions in the mid 2010s. Right. Right? I mean, this is transformational and it's also driven a decline in prices and then you kind of get the sense that there are you know and these are not the pollsters right but there are some folks within the administration who think that rising gas prices are good because that will accelerate the transition right. you know towards you know electric vehicles or away from gas when you know the the, the pain the economic and political pain from that will live far after you know Absolutely. these the price increases yeah, it's a, it's a very pretty, a pretty cruel and brutal way of, of trying to change an economy. So I, I know you've got to go in a minute, but just so, one last quick question is um, the the way my theory of what I've seen in these races so far is that there's roughly 25, 30 percent of, of folks that that will vote for whoever Trump says to vote for. And and uh, but I'm heartened by the fact that that two thirds, 75 percent of voters really do just look at the issues, look at issues like inflation, gas prices, energy policy, and vote for the candidate most equipped uh, to, to advance solutions in that area. And, and your point on natural gas is the Trump administration actually did well mm-hmm. by, by but, uh, bending the knee to traditional constitutional conservatism mm-hmm. and, and embracing an all of the above energy policy. So what's just in closing, what's your message to, to people in Michigan who it didn't like your vote on impeachment, but 
but ought to like all of your other policy positions, particularly on energy. Well, yeah, and, and I, I give the Trump administration a lot of credit. No, Donald Trump had some weird fixations on uh, showerhead efficiency, right. and, and I think on toilets as well, which we can get into map ratings and some of the 0.8 gallon per flush. Um, you know, I'm a very big fan, not to not to get into sponsorships here, but um, Niagara Stealth is one of the best toilets in the world, in my view. Um, and Trump also had a really weird hang up around windmills that are, uh, you know, uh, wind yeah. power generation that yeah. but everyone has their thing. No, I mean, to your point, my, I'm not out here to try to um, you know, be dwelling on the past. I mean, I think it's important that when things are are unacceptable, you say that they're unacceptable. Uh, but but too often, you know, our politics just becomes an effort and chewing the cud over and over and over yeah. again. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are sick of it. That's one of the reasons why I think Donald Trump was so popular is because he represented, you know, not politics as usual. And I think that, frankly, that was a very needed uh, antidote. Now, I think he had a lot of political missed opportunities in there. And I think that there were for for every there, there were plenty of good. There was it was not unalloyed good. Um, but what we need to be focusing on on the Republican side of the aisle, you know, is not orienting the party around, you know, in, in favor of or opposition to singular individual. I mean, no, no organization you know, that that has a charismatic founder, a charismatic leader, if they don't have a succession plan, you know, everyone's got God gives us all term limits on this, you know, blue marble. So where we should be focusing is not on reverting back to the pre-2016 status quo, you know, not thinking that 2017 to 2021 is set in amber and that is the, the golden age that we should always be worshiping, but frankly saying, how can we take the best of both worlds? How can we be reflective and responsive to the American people to having policies that actually work rather than a bunch of slogans and catchphrases? Um, and that's going to require a bit more nuance. It's going to require some, uh, what I think can be very productive and lively conversations, you know, but has to get away from the, the knee-jerk demonization. And I, I think a lot of Americans reflect with being in a position where they don't they don't want to be viewed so narrowly. They want to be, they want to have, have some depth, have some breadth. And, and that's what we're trying to offer. Great. Well, Congressman, thank you so much uh, for your time. Uh, that's, a, that's a terrific perspective. And uh, uh, this has been John Hart with Right Voices. Uh, you can follow us at C3 Solutions, uh, C3NewsMag.com. And uh, we'll hope to have you on again, Congressman. I, I would look forward to that. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to see you again. Mm-hmm.